This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. This podcast is brought to you in part by Sovereign Sportsman Solutions. As conservation officers, we know just how important technology is in this day and age. S3 is a cutting-edge and trusted vendor that provides state agencies with licensing, mobile, CRM, marketing, law enforcement, and event management solutions all in one place. They are dedicated to benefiting the resource, so check out the link in the show notes to sign up for their newsletter and get the industry insights, news, and content that can keep you up to date on the tech that helps drive conservation into the future. A Game Warden's children's book, titled A Cowboy in the Woods, is a story of Bobby, a boy who spends the whole summer observing wildlife, writing notes in his notebook, fishing with his dad, and keeping track of all the animals in his neighborhood. While trying to solve a neighborhood mystery, what he discovers is more than just an appreciation for the natural world. The idea for this book came from Wayne Saunders' own childhood experiences, growing up and exploring the woods and streams and lakes and ponds of his native New Hampshire. The love of nature instilled in his childhood led him to a career as a conservation officer. Wayne Saunders is a retired lieutenant conservation officer from the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. Lindsay Webb is a naturalist, wildlife biologist, and environmental educator. Together, they collaborated with wildlife artist Ashley Mares to produce The Cowboy in the Woods, the story of a boy whose love of nature leads him in unexpected directions. Available at wardenswatch.com and Amazon. Warden's Watch Podcast is now on Patreon, combining the Thin Green Line Podcast and the Warden's Watch Podcast on Patreon to bring member-exclusive extra content, both video, audio, and with product deals as well. Become a member to support our podcast and get something extra. Search Warden's Watch Podcast 
on Patreon. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join HuntOfALifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit HuntOfALifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, episode 68. Interview with Counselor Paula Booth. John, this was, a uh, boy, it was, it was different for me going in and talking with my counselor, talking to our podcast people, uh, bringing that whole counseling realm. But it's so important, so important. Uh, we both have gone through critical incidents, but it certainly affected it, all of us. And I just... Uh, I think that I think it's an opportunity to start talking about it, and we're going to have another opportunity because we're getting so much questions and stuff to have a, a Patreon exclusive with Paula Booth and us uh, September 29th. But it has generated a lot of conversations about this little mini series we've done, and th- thank you so much for doing my interview. That was really important to me, and we did a great job. We've got a lot of good feedback from it. So. Yeah, I've really, uh, you know, it, you, you hit it on the head, Wayne, when you talk about critical incidences and all the times I've told that first gunfight story where, you know, my partner was shot and we waited for a long air rescue and how agonizing it was to mm. see him almost die in my arms. And then you were, you know, you were a victim, you were shot and almost killed as well, had it not been for your very badge saving you. Mm. Um, but in all these times I've told this story on podcasts to get the training aspect of it, the will to survive, all those different things that people need to know going into the profession and the real threats that are out there facing the thin green line of warriors on the front lines. We've never got into the mental and psychological impacts and the lasting effects of those and how critical counseling services are with the right type of professional. Mm. And I think bringing Paula in, what, a, what an amazing lady, what an amazing professional and that you guys have stayed in touch, you know, since your incident way back in the mid nineties, mm. um, when peer counseling and even professional counseling for shootouts was just not the thing we did in the tough guy law enforcement and law, you know, world. So having Paula on in this episode, I think was probably the most beneficial part of the four-part series, especially for civilians and first responders moving forward after listening to both of our stories, 
Um, and the fact that we're going to have her on and she's so generous to come on and talk on our live Patreon exclusive September 29th. And we're going to advertise that guys, but tune in on that. If you're a Patreon member, we're going to dive in deep. There's going to be a lot of questions and, and, and conversations that are going to come up outside of what was covered in the podcast that can benefit not only first responders, Wayne, but they can benefit everybody that could have a traumatic loss in their lives or see uh, something very dangerous go down on an outdoor adventure like we just did on the Grand Canyon last week, which will nice. be another story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, looking forward to that one. And you're absolutely right. This, this is going to give people a chance to ask these questions to a professional and get answers as well as to us directly and asking about what this has done. The story has opened up to my local community to me. It's just utterly amazing. No matter where I go, we talk about the the current podcast and they, they feel comfortable now talking about it with me because now they understand that I'm comfortable talking about it, which has opened up so many different doors just locally, going to different venues and different people coming up to me and saying, hey, thanks for letting us know it's okay. Now I have some questions. So, And that's exactly what this Patreon event's going to do. You can ask those specific questions, get specific answers from both you and I and with Paula right there. Uh, you're right. She's an outstanding lady, a great counselor, and has such a tool set to help people. And this is going to further that. So looking forward to that. But here, here is her interview. And a great way to wrap up this four-part series is about counseling and healthy people get help, and the human factor of it. Enjoy Warden's Watch, Episode 68, Paula Booth. On this Warden's Watch, I have the privilege of introducing Paula Booth, who is the Director of the State of New Hampshire Employee Assistant Program. She has a Master's of Clinical Social Work degree from Boston University, is a member of the National Academy of Certified Social Workers and is nationally certified as an employee assistance professional. She has served as the president of the Granite State Employee Assistant Professional Association. Paula is experienced in critical incidents and trauma response and has widespread experiences working with individuals and groups. She is a member of the Governor's Commission on Domestic and Sexual Violence and the Attorney General's Domestic Violence. She functions as an advisor to the state government decision makers. Paula provides keynote addresses, lectures at conferences, community events, and state-sponsored trainings. She is a former foster parent. Paula has been employed with the state of New Hampshire for 35 years. And the reason I know Paula is because she was my counselor after my shooting. And I will give Colonel Alley kudos. Uh, he did a lot of cutting-edge things back in those days because counseling really wasn't accepted 24 years ago this year as much as it is now. It's had this gradual progression through it. So Colonel Alley basically, he didn't order me to go, but he didn't give me a lot of wiggle room either. So, <laughs> so he sent me to Paula, and I remember going in there and saying, I'm going to sit there and say nothing, do nothing. I'm just going to say, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I remember the day she opened the door, invited me into her office, and then I got to admit, Paula, you were a pretty attractive lady, and I really doubled down then and said, there's no way I'm going to talk to an attractive woman about, my, about what I'm thinking and everything. And then probably 15 minutes into our conversation, I was telling Paula things, all kinds of things that I'd never expected to. And I think because I was getting to the point of breaking. And I, uh -huh. I don't want other people to get to that point 
where they are at that fractured point and ready to break because there's so many key things that can break you before counseling. You know, an incident, I remember going to incidents after my shooting where they told me the guy that, that killed people didn't do a good enough job because he didn't take me out too. You know, that, that infuriates you, that angers you, and that's exactly the reaction they want. They want you to snap. They want you to hit them. They want you to do that, and that's why they just keep throwing that stuff in your face. And I, and I moved out of the general area for a while. I still am not that far away, but that was part of my healing process too, that every call I went to back up state police on, I didn't have to hear that. And kudos to the guys that, that went through that. I think Eric Johnson uh, had to deal with a lot of that. And on several calls I was with, uh, he was a state trooper, um, went over to the Coast Guard after and ended up at the Pentagon too. So good friend. Uh, but he had to, he, he went through that after dealing with those types of people saying those types of things and handled it uh-huh. extremely well. But Paula, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for having this conversation with us because I think it's so important, not only to police officers and law enforcement officers, but to the general public because counseling is really for everybody. And, uh-huh. you know, to have the tools that you guys have in your tool pouch to use to give to us to use and not everything works on everybody, but you bring out another tool and say, well, try this, try that. And Mm -hmm. some of them may seem simple. Some of them work for some people and some don't, but, and and it's boy, it's, it's hard to break that, that first bridge to go in and to sit down to a counselor. And I can remember mine going into your office like it was yesterday, but, but extremely important, especially in critical incidents. And everybody has a critical incident in their life, whether it's losing a Uh parent, losing a child, uh, whether, you know, your, your partner was shot in the line of duty, whether you were shot in the line of duty, police incidents, uh, there's, there's so many critical incidents that we are exposed to as humans and Part of it's understanding being human and the reaction that the normal human body has to different things. And you've taught me all this. And I said on a recent podcast that what you taught me, healthy people get help. Because we talked about counseling and, you know, he was a country music singer and he talks about going to get counseling. And I'm like, that's so great that you brought that up. And I told him healthy people get help. And he was like, he grabbed onto it. He's like, I really like that. That's because it's true. And I think if that's the message we send, then we take that stigma. I went to counseling off. No, healthy people get help. Uh, It's Uh not really, shouldn't be a stigma about it. It should be, hey, slapped on the back. I mean, I had an officer tell me, you know, how too long ago he was going to counsel. I'm like, great. That's exactly, uh, that's exactly where you should be if you think you need to be there. Cause, and it's, but it's hard to make that step. So, and you uh-huh. see that all the time, don't you? Uh-huh. Yes. And, and I would say early on, so, so you and I were working together long before additional services were, were made available to law enforcement, corrections, anyone. And when I would go out and try to advocate for these type of services, here I came into a room with, let's say, 20, 30 law enforcement folks, Susie social workers standing in the front of the room, trying to uh, convince folks that they might want to think about incorporating this into their organizations, which, of course, they had no, no interest Right. So when I started doing the education around this, I, I came from this perspective. When you need to have your taxes done, do you ever go to a tax preparer? Yes. Do you wire your own home when you need new wiring? Probably not. 
Um, now, this is a tricky one because I would say, do you cut your own hair? And in this occupation, yes, many people do cut their own <laughs> hair. But a lot of the time, they would go to somebody that does a better job with, with, with the scissors. And the point of that, starting that conversation back then, is that we are already asking for help. We are already asking for help in so many ways. Why would we not ask for help around the very fundamental parts of our being that we might need some help? And so I was able to wiggle in a little bit around that topic, approaching it from that angle, because otherwise I didn't have the street cred with the, with the audiences that I was talking to. But I knew that I had enough information that if I could get one person like you, Wayne, that would be willing to carry the torch, that would increase the likelihood that it was going to continue. So that's really where I started doing some education and advocacy about let's let's get something going in the state. I think you've been a part of a number of programs that we both have presented at over the years. And I think I'm pretty accurate that probably in the last five years, We've now started to see this really take hold with different organizations in state government and in the communities looking at peer support or having a social worker or mental health on staff. Because not only are we talking about it with the employees, you folks, we're also talking about making these people with this expertise available to law enforcement when they are out there working with other people. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, Paula, you, you made a really good point that 20 years ago, this was so foreign um, and hardly accepted by agencies and hardly accepted by officers wanting to break down the barrier of being survivors and not being victims in officer-involved shootings. And when we talk about Wayne's tragic incident, I liken it to whether you've been a victim of an officer-involved shooting or you've had to execute deadly force and and fire that shot to save lives or you've you know or you've witnessed somebody injured on your side of the line and as Wayne and I have talked about in in many podcasts you know our first OIS in California fighting the drug cartels in California was in 2005 when one of my partner wardens was shot through both legs by an AK47 um, had three hours agonizing hours of waiting for an air rescue almost didn't survive that ordeal. And here was a young man that was a year, uh, barely a year on, an amazing game warden, fresh out of the academy, uh, trained him in the academy. We were partners as squad mates and then promoted to be his supervisor 20 days before the shooting. Oh. And he's on his first marijuana operation. And we're in a gunfight with uh, basically eco-terrorists. And at that time, that was the first year we actually had peer counselors that had been trained, that had either been involved in OISs or had overseen some of those uh, officer-involved shooting incidents to come out and lend their their expertise and just peer support without it being discussed anywhere else um, is a very positive thing. But it wasn't the peer support staff that, that really were the hangups, I think. It was us feeling comfortable enough to talk to our peers and be vulnerable and realize that, you know, did we make a mistake? Did I almost get this young man killed on his, you know, first operation and, you know, and Wayne shooting was uh, even many years before that. Uh, so we're looking at this historical development and how invaluable 
counseling services are and peer support counselors especially are. And they are embedded now in our agency as part of protocol. And we have a whole peer counselor team that's just on call mm-hmm. anywhere in the state of California, wherever any of us may get involved in an OIS or be witness to one or support another agency. And it affects, like you said, Wayne, it affects family members. It affects mm-hmm. officers that were there standing by, but couldn't save a life. And now, you know, you have a little bit of that survivor's guilt, if you will. Um, it's just amazing how complex and how d- deeply rooted the injuries are and how much they take to work out that we've seen from our experiences. So educating us all on that, Paula, is is we're incredibly grateful for it. And I'm just relieved to see it developing as a mainstay now where it's a requirement and we're letting our guard down and we're starting that healing process sometimes as early as a day within hours of the incident Mm -hmm. happening Mm -hmm. and how critical it is to talk sooner than later where like Wayne said, he hasn't, you know, it went years, sometimes decades of not telling certain uh, facets of his story. And certainly for my my stories as well. It has been many years to feel comfortable to share them publicly outside of agency circles like we're doing with you today mm-hmm. and our listeners and viewers on, on our podcast. So um, critical stuff. And uh, you bring a lot to that. Thank you. I had two other thoughts um, early on. So again, I've been around for 35 years. The other method that we use to try to open the door a little bit. Now, certainly I had to partner with somebody in law enforcement if I was going to get any traction So we used to go to the police academy and do a program, stress management and law enforcement. That was the closest that we were going to get to this conversation. And it was very well received, standing room only, right? Then another thought that I had as a result of the event that Wayne went through, because it affected so many different agencies, and it was in one of the more beautiful areas of our state, very, very rural, And it was at a time of year where there were a certain number of people that um, were employed, but were not in the state. They might have been away for a vacation, maybe on a job assignment elsewhere. That group not being here during the immediate aftermath was also very traumatic for that group. Mm. And so I oftentimes will say to folks, who's on vacation Who's not here right now? Because they want to be a part of their group. And so when they're coming back from vacation, having been away from this, and everybody is coalescing around this issue, and even though they're buddies with people, you still feel a little bit like an outsider because you didn't experience this shared experience that everybody else had. And I saw this over and over again during that time because I would hear people saying, I'm going to cut my vacation short or I'm going to head home. And the state was in a, uh, the throes of chaos at that point. And people were saying, no, finish wherever you are. These people wanted to come home and be a part of this, even though they weren't on site for the actual event. So I think that's a select group of people that when we're talking about responding that we need to think about their special needs as well as the special needs of the people that have been involved in the event. Yeah, that takes a very broad thought and people that are focused on the event usually don't think about those people. Um, of course. So that's, that's good that, that others are thinking about them because you're so focused on, on what's going on and mm-hmm. on the, 
the micro thing and not, you know, in John's case, I'm sure there was team members that w- weren't there that were, again, you know, a feeling guilty, thinking they should have been there. And again, being wanting to be part of that because I can, I can, you're right. I, I know people that were on vacation during my shooting incident uh, mm-hmm. on their honeymoon and actually came home to, to be a part of it and to, to be there for everybody, which mm-hmm. you're, you're right. So we, we can't forget it because critical incidents affect so many people and I think we get on blinders. I think we get that tunnel vision when you're directly involved with a critical incident. You uh, mm-hmm. you, you don't see outside. So sometimes it's good to, to bring those in and to see how those people are reacting because, uh, you know, it can be parents, it can be children, it can be, you know, friends, relatives, coworkers. I mean, there's so many people who get affected by one incident. What, what tools, Paula, because uh, that's the important things, uh, you know, I remember some of the tools you gave me. What are some of the tools that you give people to, to work through these things that are pretty regular, your tools and your tool pouch? You know, we'll try this first. Well, it, it depends on what the situation is. Um, but but let's just speak generally. Mm. If I have somebody that's been involved in an event, I want to know if they have a primary care physician. Because one of the things that people want to feel is that they are okay physically, Right. We've got the, the physical and we've got the emotional. And the physical is the safer place to start with people. So I want to know, do you have a relationship with your primary care physician? Yes, I do. Well, maybe it'd be a good idea for you to go get checked, get your blood pressure checked, get your hearing checked, and, and keep it at that level. Very often, I will start with that. The other thing, too, is it, with, with the inception of EMDR, which is a treatment modality that very often is used with trauma, people will oftentimes suggest that people dive right into that. And my philosophy is that we want to stabilize people a little bit before we put them in the direction of something that's a little bit more significant as far as a therapeutic practice. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. We want to slow the, you know, the time down. We want to get some stability. We want simple, brief directives, nothing complex. And so if I can connect with the person, mm-hmm. primary care physician, do you are you um, involved with any church, the clergy, spirituality, which I think is another area that oftentimes we forget about. However, I do know chaplains are critically important in, in the law enforcement world. And they oftentimes can have conversations around topics that don't necessarily have a concrete answer. And those are the questions that I will oftentimes hear. Why me? Why not this person? How did this happen? I'm a good person. That person's a derp. And so Mm -hmm. if there is that connection, I very often will want to bring them in as well. I also have specific people that I connect with when I have folks that I'm working with that I know they're going to get good service. But the other part of it too is if it's possible to have any physical activity, and I'm not talking about going out and running a marathon, 
I'm saying get up off the couch and go get the mail in your mailbox and come back, right? right? And how are you eating? So I don't know if I mentioned this to you, Wayne, back then, but mm-hmm. one of the things that I that I talk to people about is what we call no mind food. It takes no mind to eat it. So I'm talking about now, again, hopefully you like these foods, <laughs> cottage cheese, fudgicles, very simple things that when your body has shut down and you don't want to eat anything, but we need your brain to function, what can you get into you that you don't have to think about at all? And I'm not talking about dry crackers and dry toast. I'm talking about <laughs> things that are, that are going to get down into your gullet. Because very often when I, when I meet with folks, they will have gone 48 hours without eating because they haven't even thought of it, right? Or they've had nothing to drink. I worked with one fellow who came in and he was spending a little bit of time having liquid meals, so to speak. And, and he, he was tipping the bottle a little bit too much and hadn't eaten at all in days. And so really at that point, it, it's about stabilizing, right? We've got to get some food into him. We've got to get some sleep into him. We've got to get the BAC down as long as it's, it's not a, a situation where, you know, we need a detox. So I'll go through sort of that assessment to begin with because nobody is going to be able to think, nobody's going to be able to process if we're not taking care of that physical aspect of it. The other piece that I oftentimes will recommend to people is don't try to fill the silence. Many, many times when I'm sitting with someone, they might have their head in their hands or they might be just sitting there staring off into space. And I will say, we can, we can sit with that. I'm not going to try to fill the silence and don't you, because part of that is your body trying to reorient itself, right? And when I work with family members of people that have been involved, I encourage that as well. Don't take it personally. Let the silence sit. Following this event, I met with a number of the partners of people that have been involved in this situation, wives, girlfriends, and whatnot, and really did some education with them and so that they could do it with their children as well about what to expect, how to respond, and how to know when they need to reach out for more assistance. So now, as compared into the past, when we had um, sort of the, um, the macho, uh, you know, it's not going to take me down, I'm going to walk through this. Now we're coming at it from a couple of different angles. So that we're arming the people that are in these people's lives. So it's not just me being able to have some thoughts on how to proceed forward. Now we even have material that I give to people. The other thing that's of interest, and I'm kind of going around Robin Hood's barn here, Wayne. The other thing that pops to my mind is when we're talking about a critical incident, what I have found is that sometimes the definition of critical incident changes when there's a change in leadership. So what might have been in an SOP as far as activating peer support or activating a debriefing was written in an SOP by a former leader. Then you have that person leave and someone is promoted and they have a different definition of it. And so I think it's really important for the people in my position or the people that are at the head of peer support or the people that are um, the presidents of the union to talk to the new leadership when they come in to make sure that that definition is still intact and accurate. 
because in the years that I've been doing this, there have been ebbs and flows where we would receive a lot of inquiry following an event. Then there would be a change in leadership and we would kind of wonder why are the referrals sort of slowing down? And now I can tell you in retrospect, no fault of anybody's, that the definition changed. Mm. So if we want to keep this consistent, we want to keep this on the front burner, and we do have the people doing the work, the peer supporters, let's make sure that the decision makers still are using the same definition to activate these resources. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It very much does. I'm, I'm taking notes here. <laughs> Look, <laughs> looking at some history with our agency, Paula, and uh, all really good stuff. And you know, this question comes up with, with peer support versus clinical, psychological, uh, EAP guided. Um, just like on the West Coast, we have the employee assistance program and we have eight to 10 free visits until we get a referral you know, from a doctor to, to continue for critical incident, but we have peer support. Can you kind of talk about the difference? And as peer support has become more and more mainstream guidelines, standards, uh, mm-hmm. when those, those, the, the first incident I'm talking about in 05, I don't know that we had much formalized training for the few peer counselors we had that were there, but they were invaluable. But now that's become more of a mainstay and there's certainly, I'm sure, some sort of standards and, and uh, distribution of that knowledge mm-hmm. of where it's gone. Because a lot of us on the, on the lines relying on peer support don't know the intricacies of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the ICISF, the International Critical Incident Foundation, that does do training for peer support. They do a group format for groups, obviously, and and for individuals that need assistance. So they have standardized programs through that organization, and I've been to a couple of them. In the state of New Hampshire, what we're doing is we're bringing together leaders of peer support groups, people that have been interested in peer support from the old days, clinicians, and we are putting together a guideline that any law enforcement entity could use to start developing their own peer support program. Mm -hmm. So this started out of the attorney general's office and now we've moved it out of there because it, it, it got bogged down with so many other responsibilities that they've had. And so now we have um, a steering committee that volunteers their time And so we really have worked hard on getting this document put together so that eventually it can be released to any chief and hopefully it will be unveiled at a chief's association meeting that here are some people that you can reach out to if you would like to, number one, have training, if you would just like to start talking about it. But back again, when you were first starting, peer support has been around forever, even though it was never named. We were doing peer, you folks were doing peer support long before it became Vogue. Informally, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Informally. And I can think of a couple of different areas where, where peer support used to occur that maybe we're not encouraging it as much now, um, <laughs> but it happened and it still does happen. So when people say, gee, this great new phenomenon, it is new. However, it was in existence, just not with fully trained people. So I would encourage people to look at the ICISF programs. They've got all different kinds of programs that um, people can be sent to. Um, Within the state of New Hampshire, we're looking at what would be the entity that would give the blessing for a group to call themselves peer support? What are we going to require for education? What are we going to require for the structure? Who do they report to, et cetera, Mm -hmm. to give them credibility? 
The other piece is we did have legislation passed that gave the peer support groups confidentiality um, protection, which up until then, it was very difficult. You know, I, I am bound by confidentiality like many other people, but fellow law enforcement folks didn't have that protection. And that legislation did pass. And because of the hard work that they did, it is now being applied to child protection workers, dispatchers. And so it's going back through the legislature to give those peer support groups the same protection around confidentiality. That's pretty exciting. Big, big stuff. And very, very cool to see those developments over time. Don't doubt. And so dispatchers back, Wayne, when you had your event or anybody in the communication field, and we know communication was was a, a real issue at that time, they were often the forgotten, right? Mm, yes. And yet a- any of those folks that I spoke with, they felt critically responsible for the welfare of you folks, mm. right? And also communicating to people that were in your life. And very often, whenever there was a gathering, a debriefing, services Mm -hmm. provided, they were the ones that were left out. So we've made a real effort to make sure that we are bringing them into the fold, professionalizing them just like every other occupation, so that they too have the resources. Because as 911 changes, if we get to a place where they're seeing video as well as audio, they technically are going to be the first responders to most scenes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we know we know the impact that that's going to have. So let's start thinking about that now and get these resources, uh, the heavy lift taken care of now so that when they do move into that arena, they will have sniffed out the programs, so to <laughs> right. speak, and felt, <laughs> felt comfortable with them, and then we'll use them. Yeah. And so with the peer support groups that we have now, all of the ones that, that I'm a part of, I, I shouldn't say I'm part of. I'm a resource to them. I am not on their staff. But what ends up happening is very often, like I just got a call from a local PD the other day about um, a law enforcement um, officer that lost his 15-year-old son. They know how to deal with each other. But the peers reaching out to me saying, what other resources are out there? What other things should I be thinking of as I'm working with this person? Mm. So they continue working with the law enforcement person. I don't enter the picture unless they want me to. Mm. But I end up being a resource for the peer support people because I do this all the time. They're carrying two jobs, peer support and their everyday job. That makes so much sense to have a resource like you to reach out to. Certainly. And then you have been a resource. And I, I think I think I got you early on and uh, was front and center <laughs> where, uh, you know, you, you would become more of a resource for more of a broad based thing, which I think is awesome. That's how it should have progressed. I, I was just very lucky to go through the process. And, you know, I, I talk about how game wardens are perceptive in people's behavior. Counselors are extremely perceptive in people's behavior, too. They, they hone the same type of skills. Mm-hmm. And you can read a room, basically. When you're reading those body languages, you're reading uh-huh. the, the the answers. And looking back, I always say, you know, I, I appreciated that. Now, you know, as a game warden, I read body language all the time. But I remember even our last day, I walked in and you looked at me. You said, you don't even, you don't need to be here, do you? And I said, no, uh-huh. I don't. And again, that just tells me how tuned in you are to the people you're counseling 
and, and working through these issues, you know, from, from the beginning to the end. And there was, you know, in my shooting, it was, there was all kinds of different things. It was getting back into the community. The, uh-huh. the incident was certainly, it was so community orientated to lose officers of the community that were part of the community. So getting integrated back into that community was very difficult because everywhere I went, I think you called it the Mark of Cain. Sit down in a diner, I could hear people talking about me at all the tables. Uh-huh. Not just one table, two tables, but all of them. Uh, and uh-huh. that was that was kind of unnerving and probably uh-huh. not really well. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'd have people speak to, speak to me that had been listening to my conversations, about my conversations. Uh-huh. It was, it was uh-huh. very, very difficult to go back into that and to be accepted and then of course all the law enforcement people are also watching you to see how you're going to react and if you're going to come out uh-huh. and how 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 it's going to to progress to especially supervisors and and I get that uh-huh. at this point um I get that their concerns and certainly Colonel Alley not ordering me but ordering me <laughs> to go to go to counseling <laughs> <laughs> but but you know today when when I'm working with folks just like you said you know it could be the bagger at the grocery store that looks at you and put, Hey, are you the one? Yeah. You know, and, and you, you just want to get your lettuce and your dog food and get out of there. Right. And so on the front end, you asked about some, some of the techniques uh, I'll work with a, let's develop a statement that you're going to develop now because somebody's going to walk up to you at a dinner table where you're trying to have a nice quiet meal and they're going to come up and they're going to say something foolish <laughs> and you're going to want to tear their head off. Mm. And so let's decide now. The other part of that too is other people that weren't necessarily at the event and you had a very, you have a very close community up there. Assume that other people in your occupation know all the details. Mm. And so they're going to go up to these fellow officers and say, Hey, wait a minute. You worked with that Wayne Saunders. Did it really go down like this? And so they assume that you're going to either share information or that you have it. So when we're working with one person, we really should be working with the collective group because that's the shared experience. And they want to be professionals. They want to still be part of the fabric of the community. But people can be knuckleheads. There's no no doubt about that. And so I think as we become wiser in how to deal with these things, we start thinking about the spiderweb effect. And, and how the rest of the community, it's different in Manchester versus something up in Colebrook, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, that's one of the, and that's one of the other keys as a professional, knowing the difference in the different areas of the state and what are the differences between the North Country and Manchester so that you don't use a cookie cutter approach with both. Sure. Paula, something that, uh, we've talked about in the past and I went through personally is not being, um, not being put off with seeking counseling help or rather it be peer support or, or clinicians, but feeling comfortable with a particular counselor you're going to mm-hmm. work with. Mm-hmm. That has always been an issue where, um, talking to peers was always an easy thing for me, even in the tough, I don't want to, I'm good. I'm healthy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fight through this. Right. Mm-hmm. Wayne's situation as well. And I, when I saw, I'm sure I'm speaking appropriately for both of us, but, um, when it came to going to see that professional psychologist and go and make that office visit, that was much more formal. Um, 
I didn't always connect, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I went in with that already a little bit of apprehension and the, the defense barrier up, you know, the deflector shields are up mm-hmm. and I go in and there's, there's not really a flow. I'm not really connecting. There's not really that, I don't know, implicit trust, if you will, but just by seeing a different counselor, nothing personal against anybody, but mm-hmm. just, just connection. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, you know, it was easier for me to talk to a female counselor versus yes. a male and vice versa. And, you know, in multiple incidences, we would get assigned and I would go to different counselors and and just say, you know, nothing personal, but I just can't share this with you right now. Mm -hmm. I'm not in the mindset. I'm going to be a robot. I'm going to, I'm going to be regurgitating fact patterns and I'm going to have no emotional connection. And definitely, I don't think dive into this psychologically. So what do you tell officers or anybody within this group that would, that would need that counseling service and also counselors themselves of, how do we work around that? What are some good methods and, and what to expect for people that haven't had to use those surfaces yet? Well, I, I think of it in a couple of different ways. First of all, if I if I had to be in your shoes, I would not want to go to somebody that had to educate them about my job. Right. <laughs> let, let, let me just start with that. Yeah. I might I might need to know a little bit, okay? Uh, you know, I don't pretend to know at all. But for you to come in the door and have to educate me about what your job is, I I would think that would be a deal breaker. The other thing I oftentimes will say to folks, if you have, if you don't like your Aunt Sue and you come in and I look like Aunt Sue, chances are we might not jive, right? Right. And, And so when I go out and talk with folks, I will say to them, if for some reason it doesn't click, for whatever reason, we don't take it personally. As the director, you call me and I will switch things around. Awesome. Yeah. But I think the other part of it too is, and you sort of nailed it, the person, the helper, has about two to three minutes to make an impression on you. Right. And following that, if it's if if the connection doesn't start, it's going to be a long haul. And I do think the provider, me, checking in with you as time goes on. We might make it two or three sessions and then I dig a little too deep mm-hmm. or take it in a direction you're not ready for. Mm-hmm. And hopefully you would say, could say to me if we had any kind of trust, Hey Paula, not now. We might be able to touch that one later, but that one's, that one's a little too hot. Sure. I, I think also with people that I work with, if I can get a sense of the type of person that they think they might feel comfortable with. So let me give you an example. You said a female. Just recently, I was with a very high ranking um, person in law enforcement who said to me, and I don't think it was just for my benefit, I wouldn't go to peer because I'm high ranking and I would want to talk to a female. Okay. So that's great. We, 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 we've got that, that kind of narrowed down. I'll use a different example to see if if I'm making my point. When I have young people that I talk with, if I'm talking to the parents, I will ask them a little bit about their their young person. Is this person in sports? What does this person do for hobbies? Is it music? What not? Do they like somebody with a ponytail? Do they like somebody with an earring? What are the things that make a difference that you would think might make a difference in that connection because you know, you've only got one chance, right? Because if it doesn't work out, you might not get that person back in. I might have that conversation as well with the the person that's coming in the door. The other part of it too, is we travel to 
the employee, they don't have to come to us. Right. So that I believe brings down barriers as well. We, if they don't want to go to a therapist's office and they want to sit at Dunkin' Donuts and start having conversations, that's where we have our conversations. <laughs> right. But that's because we're a little bit unique as compared to other EAPs. It's a small state. We can do that. You know, if somebody says to me, do you want to go up to Berlin and it's September, October foliage season? You bet. I'm on my way up there in a second and I'll have <laughs> coffee and any Dunkin' Donuts that they want to meet at. So we really try to um, make it as user user friendly as possible. And the other part of it too is I used the program before I worked for the program. 35 years ago, when I started in state government, I used the program. And that's where my uh, tagline, healthy people ask for help came from. Mm-hmm. Because I wasn't broken. I wasn't crazy. I wasn't standing on the ledge. I wanted somebody that was going to be neutral and could problem solve with me that I could connect with. Nice. So Based on that experience and also having the questions, what kind of information do they keep? Where do they keep it? Who has access to it? What if somebody puts the thumb on somebody and wants to get that information? I want to know. 35 years ago, I had those questions. I would imagine that those are relevant questions today with anybody that comes in the door saying, Paula, where do you keep your information? Who has access to it? Et cetera, et cetera. And so, what we put into the program to try to engender trust is this nothing goes on a computer. Nothing. Now, I'm an old dinosaur, and I know people tell me that they can protect our computer systems and put up firewalls and all this and that. But right. I, I also shop at Christmas time when a lot of the credit cards get snagged right. at, you know, I'm not buying that, not buying you that. Know, yeah. Yeah. So so I think when you put those kinds of safeguards in and you're thoughtful about it, it makes it that much more palatable and feels safer to people. The other part of it, too, is word of mouth is, is huge. If confidentiality is breached in any way, the program's gone. Yep. And we've been around for decades. And fortunately, the grapevine is one of the most efficient systems in our, our state system. I don't believe that we've ever been accused of breaching confidentiality. So you can tell I'm pretty passionate about this work because I've got the best job in the world. And working with folks in situations like this is an absolute privilege because for somebody to let you into their life when they've experienced something like this is nothing more than an honor that they allow you to do that. And I think if you come from that place, the person coming in the door senses it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think with that mindset, you summed it up, you know, you, you take what you're doing for. You'd think with four of us spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune into Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Those clients, those of us with whatever critical incident, you take it delicately, you know, you take it as an honor, Mm -hmm. you take it in confidence and we can trust you. And that's ultimately the end game, you know, Mm -hmm. is is having that trust. And you're 100% spot on when those first two or three minutes with whatever professional we're going to talk to, 
it's it's made it's made or broken in that mm-hmm. limited time window of uh you know 120 seconds or whatever mm-hmm. so that's that's good to know and it's good to know that it's not a negative for us to i'm not going to say shop around i think that's no. trivializes it but you know find the right fit mm-hmm. certainly find the right fit because the sooner the better we get the help I know when my partner that was shot that we talked about in the beginning, physically ready to come back in five or six months, go get her highly motivated, one of the best cadets in the academy, but was just too mentally tough to say, no, I've worked through it. I don't need to talk to a shrink, not an issue. And the next two years of operations of him out on his own, he was out there kicking ass, taking names, so to speak. But there was a lot of issues with um, just height, over heightened awareness, a little bit of too much force, you know, officer safety was, you know, mm-hmm. you can't have enough officer safety, but there's a point that it, it could be a problem if it's perceived the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to this day, when I debrief this thing and, and speak to other agencies about the whole incident, I just did so for the new California state parks tactical team last week, actually. And I said, guys, don't be afraid and, and don't hold back on getting the, that help immediately because I'm going to tell you, my partner will tell you to this day, I was ready to come back physically. I could not wait to get back on the horse, but I was not ready to ride. Uh-huh. And I went and I rode around for two years, not utilizing and not healing where I needed to and just pushing through kind of on uh-huh. autopilot, if you will. And it showed and it, things have worked out wonderfully now. It's 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 a completely different situation in a positive way. But that was a real eye opener for me as a supervisor and as a fellow LEO. And in starting to hear stories like Wayne's and working with other agency guys and gals from all over the country, how critical that is and how prideful and defensive and how we never want to appear weak. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be perceived as weak. And we never, game wardens especially, right, Wayne? Mm-hmm. We don't ask for a lot of help because we we're alone all the time, you know, right. and we don't, we don't have backup three minutes away and we don't have a squad of, you know, fellow officers flooding the streets and we're not palling around in two, three, four, five, five officers deep on an operation. We're, we're kind of lone wolves, you know, we're kind of alphas out there by design and we're programmed that way from the Academy on self-reliance is everything until it gets to this. And then you got to completely counterintuitively look completely behave the way we're not programmed to behave for the sake of our, our, our mental health and those around us. And it's, it's a big deal. It's quite a challenge for some of us. So this is uh this is good. We see how to get those tools and, and where it's gone. And in a professional, a good professional would understand the difference between what you just described mm-hmm. being sort of the loner out there. And how do you approach somebody who, that's their experience versus somebody that is from the inner city because yes. the two are, are worlds and worlds apart. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if I come at it, like I'm working in where we have Manchester, New Hampshire, where there's many more people, I'm, you're going to look at me and say, this woman doesn't have any idea really what she's talking about <laughs> or what my life is about. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, True story. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, and I think somebody that's worth their salt, like you folks picks up on the nuances of what is going to be successful with folks doing the work that you're doing. And and I can't articulate them. I would just experience them. The other thing that, that when you say your uh, colleague was hypervigilant and all of that, we know our body has a, a body memory, right? right. And so educating. And, and so if we come at it from a different angle, a little bit than the clinical mental health, 
sometimes we can get in the door, right? And so when we talk about body memory, and that's really where the hypervigilance and stuff comes, sometimes it's a little bit more palatable than to say, you know, um, are you having intrusive thoughts? Are you Mm -hmm. um, having bad dreams at night? Uh, The PTSD, classic things. You might be able to get to that person from a different angle, which really, as people have oftentimes said to me, what happens if nobody talks, if Hmm. I'm doing a group? And actually, I I did one, actually, Wayne, I was up in in Berlin, as, as you know, for quite some time. And they said to me, what happens if nobody talks? And I said, that's my responsibility to Mm -hmm. find a way, but to be able to live with the silence. But as the professional, it's my job to figure out a way to move this along if it's at all possible. And that's what you would hope for, for any professional that you enlist. No doubt. It's it's breaking the ice, so to speak. It's it's how to do that if no one's volunteering. It's how to break that ice, whether you use humor or something. Other and I can think of situations where uh, the colonel, Colonel Kevin Jordan, used humor and stuff, and and started the room with that, and it, and it re- worked really, really, really well. And ha- and having been there and done that, that type of stuff with those people is certainly helpful for sure. And I think that that peer stuff is really important to do that. I mean, I was very lucky to have you in the perception very early on, but to someone that knows where you've been and walked in your shoes mm-hmm. is priceless. Um, mm-hmm. no, no doubt about it. And mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> John is right with the right fit for the right people, because there's certainly people that we, we just don't hit it off with. If they don't know anything about our background or, or live in Manchester and, and talk to, you know, city people all the time, we're not, we're not going to connect. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, and I know it works because I've been through it. My career was an awesome career. I enjoyed it. And my last day, one of my things to do was to call Paula Booth and thank her for I me know. getting through. <laughs> Appropriately uh, so. And, yeah. and that br- that brings tears to my eyes because I actually was down at the ICISF conference. And I called the office and they said Wayne had called. And when I called him, there it was wow. better than any pile of gold you could have ever given me because it just it validates everything that, that we did together. Mm -hmm. And it, it made a huge difference in my life too. No, it was very important because I I certainly realized I wouldn't have done a whole career. I don't think had I not been forced to go to counseling (laughs) (laughs) and and have the appropriate counselor as well. Cause like, like I said, and I wasn't funny when you opened the door and I saw attractive woman there that I doubled down. There's no way I'm talking to this woman. And, you know, and I think of that as a counselor, you know, sometimes we can talk to women, sometimes we can't. In my perception back then, I, I don't know what it was, but I remember going, there's no way I'm talking to her. Uh-huh. <laughs> but being ready, uh, and I think that was part of yeah. it. And there was so uh-huh. many facets that, that were eating inside of me from, from community to personal relationships uh-huh. to, uh-huh. Yeah, it was just, yeah, it, it was, there was a lot there to, to air out and, and talking about it. Still, I told you guys earlier, the one time I broke down at a conference is I hadn't talked about my shooting in a long time and I hadn't talked about my yeah. friends. Uh-huh. And when I got up there and started talking about it, I, I broke down. It's been years since I actually shared and it was tougher being years not sharing because I had all that built up. So it's good for me to talk about it. And I don't mind when people reach out to me and, and ask me questions and they still do to this day. And they always want to tell you where they were when that happened. It's kind of like nine mm-hmm. 11 in a smaller mm-hmm. scale. Yeah. They yep. want, they want you to know their experience. And there's so 
many community experiences out there, you know, tragically affected through this. And I want to hear them and I want to know where they were and what they were doing. And some of them are heart wrenching for sure, because some people are right there on the front line that again, were those people that got affected, but probably didn't actually get help, but, you know, saw some of these murders go down right in front of them and were Mm -hmm. traumatically affected to this day. And then they had the Jeremy Sharon murder Mm. within the same weekend, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what a blow to New Hampshire significantly. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was it was a horrible day, a horrible week for law enforcement. You know, Jeremy mm-hmm. was just a few academies after I was, so same age bracket. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it almost and I and, I, and I'm going to apply it to today because it almost made us feel vulnerable because somebody killed you know two state police officers that it was that that we were vulnerable. And I, I almost wonder mm-hmm. if that was in those people's mind when they killed Jeremy mm-hmm. Shannon, that we were vulnerable. And I see that in today's society, King law oh, enforcement across the nation, vulnerable, like it's okay to shoot a police officer. It's okay to assault a police officer. It's okay not to listen to the commands of a police officer. And it, right. it, it's, it's, it's a horrible, horrible thing that our country's going through right now. A, a court, a law of court, is that when, that's when you can actually ask those questions and do those things. Listen to the police officer. There's other places to iron it out mm-hmm. for sure. Paula with um well, first of all, does your agency have like a Learjet so you can come out to the West Coast? <laughs> I got to get you embedded with California Department of Fish and Wildlife, Met, yes. and Patrol. Totally agree. First and foremost. Um, <laughs> no, seriously. And uh, I'll kidding aside on that. Do you have, if you could sum up a message to our listeners and our viewers that haven't had to use these services before that are in the law enforcement, LEO, first responder community on any level, taking that first step if they're reluctant. Um, anything you can just, you know, we talked a lot about it generally. We, we've hit a lot of intense topics and, and direct topics so far, but just just something for the naysayers that just have never been through this yet, like I was back in 05, like maybe, you know, Wayne was on the fence of being back in his tragedy. What could you, what could you tell our people? Well, I don't know. I'd want to think about it, but but one of the ways that I package this is we're, you're looking to problem solve right. to complete your career and choose the career that you, the trajectory you want your career to take. And if we approach it from a problem solving perspective, people are more apt to engage in a conversation. If hmm. we approach it from, I'm going to try to figure out how you were toilet trained as a baby <laughs> in a clinical manner, people aren't going to be interested. Right. But I think that we we are we always try to make sense of things because if we can make sense of it and fit it up here, it reduces our anxiety. Some things just don't make sense. Right. And when I'm working with somebody, I might say to them, give yourself a break because it won't make sense. No matter what the explanation is, it won't be enough to make sense. So let's problem solve our way through this. I don't know that that's the best answer that I would give, but it is a very common um, explanation that I use. Because really, when you're thinking about it, what you're problem solving is, how do I get back to work? How do I keep myself safe? And how do I keep my partner safe? Right. So it's not just me, it's my partner as well. And when my partner sees me not well, there are two people at risk, right? not just one. And the other thing I would say is you can make an appointment and you can always cancel it. Right. Make the appointment. 
And then if you want to cancel it down the road, go ahead. And that's often, and, and I'll say that to people who make an appointment with me, make the appointment now. If you cancel, that's fine. But maybe from the problem solving perspective, I don't know that that is as uh, fancy a response as you might have hoped for, but it's a very simple one. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that if we talk to people in that way, people are more likely to engage with us. Yeah, that's no, that's spot on. And I think it, I think it's a baby step approach. So you're not overwhelming and diving into the deep end mm-hmm. for an officer that's maybe reluctant to, to jump into uh, mm-hmm. any type of services. And it's just uh, take that first baby step and then mm-hmm. take another one if you're comfortable. And at least you're making that move um, and you're, you're starting down the road of, of some positives. So mm-hmm. that's great stuff. And thank you. Our, uh, the, the other thing I would also say, as I've said to people before, cause I can see them kind of sizing me up. <laughs> should I, or shouldn't I? Yeah. Um, and I will oftentimes say, there's nothing that you're going to tell me that's going to make me back away. Nothing. Huge. Not that I've heard everything, but you're not going to scare me. I'm not going to pass judgment. There's nothing you can say. And usually all of a sudden the defense goes down and will say, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Because like in the work you do, when you ask people questions, they give you this much first, right? (laughs) To figure out where you're going to go with the next question. Exactly. Yeah. Same thing happens here. They're going to give me this much and to see how I'm going to respond. And then there might be a really potent story after that. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Wow. Great well, this has been an awesome conversation, Paul. I hope for our listeners, it, it's going to help them deal with critical incidents in their life and, and not have that stigma of, you know, going to counseling. And even the average person, I don't think has that, as much access as a, we as law enforcement professionals, as dispatchers, as firefighters, sometimes they don't think of themselves as going through critical incidents and they do. Mm-hmm. And uh, they certainly need to know that there's professionals out there that can then help them. And for law enforcement dispatchers, and I always call the dispatchers, there are lifelines. I have so much respect for those people. They were my lifeline that day. I will say that they Mm -hmm. were the ones screaming for me and knew I needed help. So uh, Mm -hmm. I have so much respect for those people. And I'm glad they're getting included in the mental thing because they are taking it on the chin over the Mm -hmm. listening to everything that's going on and dealing with all those emotions that go along with it. So they are mm-hmm. part of that equation, you know, just giving them tools. And I think that's the most important about thing about mental health is giving tools for people to work through problems, whether it's physical or talking or, or anything like that. And we just don't go to a professional. You said it. You go get your hair cut. I cut my own hair, by the way, but now. <laughs> but you go to a professional. When, when, it, when your car is broken, generally you go to a good mechanic and you want a good mechanic. Like John said, if it's not a good fit, don't take your car back there. Go find somebody else to do it. And uh, uh-huh. But so much so that we need to get this out there more and more and more so people understand it. And, uh, and I'm going to contradict you a little. I mean, I'm going to tell them to make the appointment, keep the appointment. Because if you gave me the option to cancel, I would have never walked through your door. I know I wouldn't have. Yeah. No, if I had that option, uh, mm-hmm. I, I would never have come. And I probably would have been broken in a few years. And just like uh, John's partner that he talks about, you know, I, I that, that was the road I was going on. And I'm certainly yep. glad we averted that with, with good counseling and and like I said, successful career as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Very happy and want to talk about it still. Can't let it go. Want to t- share good it with reputation. everybody. Yeah. You have a good reputation. You're a good role model for this. You're not afraid to put it out there. Um, 
you know, there's one other group that I think is a specialty group as well. And this was a result of the funerals um, that happened up there and other funerals that I've been a part of. You folks are dressed in uniform, mm-hmm. right? Whenever we go to these funerals and, and you congregate together and, the fu- and your, your uniform represents so many different things. The partners in your life that have journeyed with you in your career oftentimes are spread out all over the place, right? But they've journeyed this career with you as well. And I think it's worth looking at if there is a funeral like the ones that we had, that there would be a staging area for the partners Mm -hmm. and maybe whether it's a ribbon, a button, something that identifies them as a collective group. Because like Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, law enforcement, fishing game, corrections, you all have these uniforms that represent what you do. Partners and supporters don't. Mm -hmm. And yet, we know that they do the journey with you. Mm -hmm. And I think it would give a lot of mileage to those people to know that they're in the same staging area. Maybe they're wearing a button or something of that sort rather than scattered around like cats. Very helpful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, great. Great thing to wrap up on and to, to think about to think about everybody around us. So thank you so much for joining us today, Paula. Um, and she's the director of the State of New Hampshire Employee Assistant Program and uh, certainly my former counselor. And the reason I did 23 years of service to the State of New Hampshire in the Fish and Game Department Thank you so much, Paula, for sharing this uh, with John and I and to our listeners, and hopefully we can help healthy people. That's right. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for all you do, Paula. Hope we'll Thank talk you. to you again, hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Take care. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.